Welcome. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a sheet maybe as you came in. It has where we're going this morning. As Scott's already mentioned, we've been looking at messy relationships and how they are. And uh, when I think about messy relationships, it's, it's interesting how we, how we perceive relationships and how kind of the influences of culture lead us to understanding our relationships. And as I was uh, thinking about this, I was thinking about how I, I've watched a lot of TV in my life, and um, sometimes I see that relationships played out. And so, like, I think about Desi and Lucille Ball, like, I Love Lucy, and you watch their relationship and uh, how messy it was at times and different things that were happening there. And so, so we watch maybe I Love Lucy and we see relationships there. And then you kind of progress forward, and I was thinking about uh, the the company of MASH 4077 and Hawkeye and Hot Lips, Houlihan and um, Radar and some of those characters. And, and the whole premise of that show is how they navigate together in their relationships and all that goes into that. You move just a little bit further. And uh, when I was, uh, you know, high school, college age, maybe I was older than that, but Friends, and you watch like Ross and Rachel and were they on a break or weren't they on a break? Like those things, that was messy. And, uh, and now today, just the continued perception of what the world shares with us about what relationships should look like. And so often what we do is we take our cues from what the world shares with us about relationships, and then we pour it into our own relationships, and we wonder, why did they get so messy? And what we want to see this morning is God's Word shows us a different path a different way in our relationships, in our messy relationships, in our good relationships, and in some of those relationships that we really would rather not be a part of. And so we're in Romans chapter 12 this morning. We're going to go there in just a minute. But just some background, if you're looking for it, Romans is about three-fourths of the way through um, your Bible towards the back. And uh, Romans is a letter that Paul wrote um, to a group of new Christians in Rome. Uh, and uh, Paul has never met them. He hopes to at some point, and part of his letter is this intention that someday I'm going to be able to be with you and, and chat with you and see you face to face. But in the interim, while I can't, I'm going to send you this letter. And, and really, Romans is this long-form letter. It's longer than most of the letters we find in the New Testament. But uh, I think part of it is because Paul just did not know when he was going to see that church and those people, and he was trying to make sure he got everything laid out. And so this long-form letter is what the book of Romans is. Um, and in it, Paul, who has had this transformational experience in his own life, right? He was a persecutor of Christians. He despised this new group of people calling themselves Christ followers, and he didn't like them, and he was at the feet of some of those that were persecuted. He was throwing them into jail, and, and Paul has this transformational experience on the road to Damascus one day, and Paul's life is completely changed. The fervor and passion that he had to persecute Christians is completely transformed, and now it is a fervor to share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with anyone who would listen. And so the first part of Romans, as you read through it, you'll find a lot of uh, what we would call doctrine or theology. He's talking about faith. He's talking about how we are justified through faith and how faith brings us to the place of repentance and that we are saved through the grace of God. 
And that's what the first part of Romans is. And then when we get to chapter 12, he starts to lay out some of the practical applications. It's interesting in church history, uh, Martin Luther started reading Romans, and it was really the antithesis for what brought him to the Reformation in his 95 Thesis. I have a quote from Martin Luther. He said this, this letter, speaking about Romans, is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said this, it can never be read or meditated on too much and too well. And so this morning, we're going to dive into Romans, Romans chapter 12, and we're going to see the practical application of what it means in our messy relationships to love others. So if you have your Bibles, look with me now, Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take, adva- take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the context of this chapter really starts in the first two verses of chapter 12. And it's important for us to look at those two verses so that we can understand, because as we read through this in 9 through 21, the challenge for us is that we would read that and we'd say, this is the checklist, this is the outline that motivates me to get all these things done. And I want to caution you against that. We're not looking to check the boxes here and say, Paul, yep, did that, yep, did that, yes, I'm doing that, not sure about this. No, going to ignore that. We're not going to see it as that, but the first two verses of chapter 12 really help us to understand how we begin to apply this. Here's what he says in verse 1. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So this phrase, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Some of you this morning are saying, what is that about? Sacrifice entails me jumping on an altar, lighting it on fire, and I burn myself up? Like, is that what I'm really going to do? No, okay? That'd be creepy and kind of weird, okay? In fact, even in the Old Testament, they would chop the animal into little bits, and so we're not going to do that either, okay? What does he mean? Well, even in the Old Testament, when the people would bring their sacrifice to the priest for their offering, when they would offer it to the priest, 
it wasn't so much about what they brought, although that was important. It was about how they brought it. What was going on in their heart? How did their heart communicate this offering, this sacrifice? Am I, am I placing my heart at the feet of Jesus? Paul says, offer your bodies, not just pieces and parts, but your whole self as a living sacrifice. It means that I lay myself down. It means it's no longer my will, but God's will. It means that I step into a place that is sometimes uncomfortable. It's in a place where I don't always understand that. What is God's will, His perfect and pure will? I offer myself as a living sacrifice. This is my true act of worship. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 2. He says this, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, when we come before God and we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, I am no longer a slave to the patterns of this world. You see, when it comes to my relationships, I am no longer a slave to the pattern of this world. The world shows me a way that they think is right. But God shows me a different way. And when He's showing me that different way, He is renewing my mind. He is renewing my heart. He is renewing my soul. And at times, it's awkward. When I start to love like Jesus loves, it, it doesn't seem like that's right. Because we're going counter to the culture in that. But Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Our temptation is to be conformed to the patterns of this world. I don't always get that right. I certainly have my moments where I am drawn towards the patterns of this world. Man, the patterns of this world show a lot of delight and pleasure and all of these things that we would desire in our lives. And I am prone to, to be pulled towards those places. But in those moments, I'm reminded that God, God, in His love for me, is transforming me. He is changing me so that I see the world differently. I see the world the way that He sees it. And as I begin to see the world as He sees it, then it affects the relationships that I'm a part of. In order to begin to change the narratives of our relationships, it's to surrender. It's to surrender our will to God's perfect will. It begins in the moments when we surrender our mind, heart, and soul to God. Transformation. It begins and it starts to motivate. Motivate the way we interact in the relationships we hold. Here's the main thought for today. Here's what I hope you will latch onto this morning. Is that a renewed mind leads to different responses when it comes to loving others. A renewed mind changes the conversation. It changes how I respond in the relationships that I have. And learning to love others begins by taking hold of the sincere love of God. 
Here's how Paul starts that passage. He says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Our love and the love that Paul is writing about to Christians predominantly at this point is to be sincere. And you ask, what what does it mean to have sincere love? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we, we desire to love well. We desire to love our family well. We desire to love our spouses well. We, love, we desire to love our family well, and our kids and our, our puppies and our kittens. And we desire to love well in all of our relationships. And yet we have a problem because our love is tainted. Our love, our human love is tainted. When it comes to love for us, we love sometimes out of obligation. We love because I have to, or I'm being made to. My love is tainted because I only love when it fits my needs. It's tainted because when I love only on, I only love when it's on my terms. It's tainted because I withhold love when I've been wronged. But Paul argues that our love is to be sincere, to be genuine, So if our love is tainted, how do I know that sincere love? Thankfully, it's been modeled for us. Jesus modeled sincere, genuine love. We know love because Christ first loved us. The scripture tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the genuine, sincere love of God. How do, I know the, how do I know sincere love? Because Christ has shown it to me. While hanging on the cross, he showed his genuine love by outstretching his arms and dying for my sins so that I could, in some small part, begin to understand how to show love, genuine, sincere love with others. As God renews our minds and renews our hearts, then our love becomes sincere. Our love for others comes without false pretense. Our love is not presented to others to make us feel better about who we are on the outside, while on the inside we are rotting away. Paul says a genuine, sincere love, one that seeks to love the way God has loved us. And love among among Christians is what we are to be known by. In Paul's day, the Jewish people were known by what they war and and the rights that they implored. The philosopher was known for his flowery words. The, The soldier was known for his weaponry and his armor. And Paul says, here's how you're to be known. Here's the badge that you're supposed to wear. It's sincere love. This is how people are supposed to know who loves you and who you love. Because God has shown that. It echoes what Jesus told us. He said, they will know that you are my disciples by your love. Love is what we are to be known by. Our response to our relationships begins by learning what it means to love as God has loved us. And to cling to that love in the midst of hate and evil. And the word cling there is is where we get the word collagen. 
Collagen is what holds the bones and the joints together. It holds it all together. And and Paul says, when, when everything is seemingly evil and you're overwhelmed by that, he says, here's the sincere love that's being offered to you. And then cling, hold fast, hold fast to that goodness of God. God's goodness and His love in the face of evil are what we must return to. We can't allow the evil to gain a foothold as we saw a couple of weeks ago. Rather, it is this stickiness of our faith to the true author of love and grace that we must hold firm. If love is to be our method for reaching into the world, then we need to know that love. We need to know the good news of Jesus. And in that good news of Jesus, we see how our love impacts three types of relationships this morning. The first of those is learning how to love the people we love. Oh, nice. All right, let's start there. That's a great place to start. I love those people. Oh, my goodness. I love them. They're so good. It's easy to love the people that we love, right? So how do we learn to love even more those that we love? Paul says, be devoted to honoring them. Be devoted to honoring them. We will have no problems often with this first group of people. We love the people we love. In many ways, it's easy to love them. We take them for their flaws, their quirkiness. We take them for who they are. We love them genuinely. They're our best friends. They're the people we have experienced good and bad times with. We're devoted to them, and they're the people that if we've spent significant time away from them and we come back together, we pick up right where we left off because we just love being with them. They're so good for our soul and for our hearts to get together with them and to love on them and for them to love on us. And Paul says in verses 10 and 11, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. And when Paul speaks about the one another's, he has family in mind. When he speaks about the one another's and he's writing to this church in Rome, he doesn't have just the church in Rome in mind. He has those in Corinth and Galatia, and Ephesus, and Jerusalem. He has all of them in mind and saying, when, when we reach out to those that we love, our brothers and sisters, in the family of God, be devoted, be honoring in those relationships. He loves this family, and in the midst of that family, how does the gospel come to fruition? We're devoted to seeing the best in those around us, and sometimes in pulling that out of them. We're devoted to extending them love when maybe anger might be, seem more warranted. We're devoted in various aspects of their lives, like when they call us in the middle of the night and we throw on whatever clothes we have and our hair's a mess and we're sleepy and we're tired and we show up and we sit with them and we grieve and we mourn and we cry with them. That's how we honor and devoted, be devoted to those that we love. There's a lyric in in the musical Wicked. And in that lyric, it says this, because I knew you, I have been changed for good. This is how we love those that we love. That as our love for them changes the relationship, our relationships are better, and they and us are changed for good. Miranda and I were discussing with our kids recently about If love were glue, 
What if love was glue? Who would be stuck to you? And that's this first group of people. We would say, these are the people that are stuck to me. We love each other. We care about each other. We're brothers and sisters, even though we're not blood-related, because we're stuck to one another. My question for you this morning is, how is God renewing your mind so that you are stuck to those who love you and you love? Who are those that we love without ulterior motives? That we love without the hopes of getting something from them? We love because we, we want to see something good in them? We want to put others first. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said it this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves, yourselves. You see, this runs counter to the culture. The culture is all about promoting myself, putting myself first, letting others see me. And Paul says, listen, it's about humbly first submitting to God and then honoring and being devoted to those, putting others first. Our devotion to those we love does not suddenly disappear because they disappoint. Our love for them continues. Paul says, be joyful in hope, patient in the affliction, faithful in prayer. Even those that we love and those that love us back will disappoint us. And the easy thing for us to do is to cut them off, to say we're done. But that's not honoring. That's not devoted. Paul says these three things, be joyful in hope, patient in the affliction, and ultimately faithful in prayer. Faithful in prayer. As we learn to love those, we love devotion to them leads us to respond to their needs. He says in verse 13, practice hospitality. And hospitality is more than social entertaining. Social entertaining is getting your house clean, making sure everything's in order, making sure the right food is placed on the, on the table. Everything's perfect. It's the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving feast, right? That's social entertaining. But when Paul talks about hospitality, he has something else in mind. Because in his day, in his culture, hospitality was something different. Hospitality was welcoming in the stranger. The person that walks through the town, knocks on your door and says, do you have a place for me to stay this evening? And you open the door and you say, come on in. You offer your food, your bed, your lodging to them. The stranger becomes your family. And so when Paul talks about this hospitality, it's extending that hospitality to our family as if they were strangers, but we're going to give them our very best. We're going to present to them our very best. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip uh, to the Ukraine. And uh, we took a, a plane into Warsaw, Poland. Then we got on a coach bus and we drove eight hours from Warsaw, Poland into, uh, Ke- uh, into Ukraine. And once we arrived there, it was late at night. We were all tired. Our hosts opened their home. And on the table was this table. I mean, food that we, we would have never eaten all of it, although we tried. Wonderful desserts, the best fruits, the best vegetables, all of their very best to us, strangers. From a foreign land to their town, to their place, to their home, 
and they opened the doors as if we had been family for generations. This is the devotion. This is the honor that we have with those that we love. We show them this hospitality. Paul says, treat those you love with hospitality. You see, you can either use stuff to win people, or you can use people to get stuff. And the former would be the attitude we would adopt, to love those we love. So easy peasy. I'm good with that one. Let's just stop right there. Let's not get into these other two because they're really messy. No, let's do. The second one that he talks about is how do we learn to love the people who do not love us? Newsflash, not everybody likes you. I don't know if you've experienced that before. Uh, It's a shock to the system, right? I am so lovable. Everybody likes me. Of course they like me, right? We live in this world that we think, ah, yeah, of course. I am such an awesome person. Why wouldn't they not like me, right? (laughs) The reality is there are those that do not like us. So how, how do we extend love to those who do not love us? Paul says, by adopting an attitude of empathy and grace. Empathy and grace. Verses 14 through 16, we have a similar approach from Paul that we had from Jesus, who taught in a section in uh, Matthew called the Beatitudes. And in that section, uh, Jesus talked in similar ways as Paul does here. He says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now, I don't know about you, but those that don't like me, my natural reaction to them is to think, oh, let me just shower them with blessing. Man, they just, I mean, they might be a mean person and they may not like me and I don't know why they don't like me, but let me just heap, heap lots and lots of blessing on them. No. Our initial thought is to think persecution. We want to heap the same things that have come at us towards them. Here's the reproach of Paul. If we are renewing our minds in how we respond to others, then blessing over curse becomes our approach. And the people that don't love us, more often than not, we would love to offer curse over blessing. In fact, maybe you've had the privilege of offering curse to somebody who didn't like you. Maybe you've allowed yourself to vent at times towards them. What a great privilege it is to go off, to vent, to feel, ah, it's just so good to get that off my chest. That's our natural response, right? When someone doesn't like us, we're not thinking about kindness and gentle words. We're not thinking of putting them in their general direction but we're seeking a different way. We're seeking to love others the way that Jesus loves others. And this takes transformational thinking. Rather, we begin to choose an approach that is empathetic. Rather than one that would elicit pain on people who don't like us, it's an extension of honoring others above ourselves. Loving others is more than just loving those who love in return. Sincere love means loving those who don't love us. And that takes some getting used to. That's some transformational kind of thinking. It means that our approach is considering people's moods, all the while being mindful of our own attitude, which 
will influence our approach. We're not to be proud or conceited. We don't take the path that says, they are not worthy of my time or my energy. We don't want to consider others better because we are good Christian people. Rather, we are willing to step into the lives of those who do not like us, our enemies, and extend love. A love that may not be returned. But guess what? God extended a love to you that He knew may not be returned. And yet He sent His Son to die on a cross for you and me. Finally, a last group. We want to learn to love the people we don't want to love. You don't know them. They don't deserve my love. I'm not going to start now loving them. And in those relationships, we want to choose a path of peace over revenge. You see, we can get by with those we like or we love. We can even through strategic avoidance get by with those who don't like us. But what about the people we just do not want to love? How do we love them? We begin by recognizing God's love gives us a different economy when it comes to the people we really don't want to love. All, all too often we choose to give full vent to our rage and frustration in the name of not being able to take it any longer. How much more effort, how much more effort would we put into peacemaking if we saw things from God's perspective rather than our own? What if we chose a path of peace rather than a path of revenge? How would our relationships begin to change? In these last verses of chapter 12, Paul gives us some helpful instruction on how we interact with that. And you want to tell me how spiteful they are, how mean they are. The words they use are not worth any love, and I get it. I've been there. I know what that's like. Because, see, our desire is revenge. We want others to get what's coming to them. We want people to get what they've given. But Paul reminds us, judgment is not ours to extend. Rather, doing what is right in the eyes of everyone is what we are charged with living out. Jesus' words are helpful here as we pour into this a little bit more. Luke chapter 6, 35 through 36. But, your love, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Is that how you practice love? Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. But love your enemies. Do good to those. You see, this is transformational kind of thing, because it's not how we think. It's not how we engage the world. It's not what we see in the world around us. The world around us wants to engage in all kinds of other things like hate and shame and guilt. And God's way would say, love your enemies. Do good to those. I needed some help with this. So I went to Ken Sandy. Ken Sandy has written a book called Peacemaking and Peacemaker. I think it's helpful for us as we finish up this morning. Five things 
that he writes about regarding these things. The first of those, in choosing peace over revenge, the first of those is to control your tongue. We heard this last week. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. This muscle in my mouth in an instant can do tons of harm. It can seek revenge. It can wipe out a person with one word. And Paul says, control your tongue. Be thinking about what is good and right. Remember the first verse of 9 says, cling to what is good. Clinging to what is good means that this, this piece of my body needs to have some control. The word there that we're talking about when it comes to this is that we're going to look at the conversations that we have. The person I despise or do not like may be due to the fact I have not chosen to really listen to them. Or what I said was misconstrued and the divide between us and the person we find difficult to love is over misheard words. Control your tongue. The second thing is seek Seek godly advisors. This is where your first group of people, those that love you and you love them, your first group maybe comes into play. Seek godly advisors. This is not West Side Story, though, where it's jets and the sharks, okay? You're not seeking godly advisors to get a team around you so that you can march over to the person that you don't love and start to say, look at all of us. We all don't love you. So I'm justified in the next course of action, okay? We're not snapping, we're not, it's not a gang fight kind of thing. Your advisors are those that are going to speak truth into your life. They are those that you trust. They are those that are going to tell you when you're wrong and when you're right. They're not going to be afraid that if you t- they tell you something that you disagree with and they're going to be gone. These are our trusted advisors, These are the people that we surround ourselves with. And so as we navigate messy relationships, we bring those people around us so that we can better engage those relationships. Third thing is keep doing what is right. Keep doing what is right. If you catch it here in what Paul says, he says, um, do not repay evil, anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. The word translated be careful means to give thought to the future, to plan in advance, or to take careful precaution. Well, we don't usually do that. The reason our tongue gets us into trouble is that we have not taken prior precaution with it. Be careful, plan in advance. We need to plan and act so carefully that When people see our actions, they will eventually acknowledge that what we did was right, that the words we spoke were truth. They may not have liked it at the time, they may not have accepted it at the time, but they come to a realization that God's truth is God's truth. The fourth thing that we see is that we recognize our limits. In verse 18, he said this, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. If we're talking about people we do not like or do not want to love, the question is, have we exhausted all that is humanly possible to reconcile that relationship? You see, we cannot force people to do what is right. 
We can't force people to like us. But have we done everything to bring that relationship back together? And I understand there's only so much that we can do. There's only so much in our human ability that we can do. And in those moments, we have to reconcile. Reconcile our own hearts to have a peace that a relationship may or may not ever be reconciled. We've done what we can. There we must leave it in God's hands. He says in verse 19, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Allow God to be the judge and justice that he is. That's not your responsibility. And finally, the fifth one, use the ultimate weapon. I don't know about you, but I got to verse 20, and uh, I was thinking about the fact that it's been a long time since I had a bucket of heaping coals by my side. What does he mean? What is Paul talking about? The ultimate weapon, these heaping coals. Like that doesn't, that seems brutal, right? Let's go back to sacrifice. Those things seem brutal. What does he mean by that? It means that we're choosing the way that God has called us to choose. It means that we love those who are unlovable. It means that we're kind when kindness probably shouldn't exist. It means that we're gracious when all we should throw is hate and anger. It means that you heap God's love continually into the equation, so much so that it is so overwhelming that you can't ignore it. You can't ignore that God's love is there and present. You just keep dumping it and dumping it because His love is transformational. His love changes lives. His love restores relationships. Be that kind of person. It's the ultimate weapon that as I extend love and kindness, when people are expecting to, for me to punch back at them, and I say, I, I, I love you. What? No, we're ready to go 10 rounds. I love you. It's hard for me to do that. It's hard for me to love you and the actions that you present on a daily basis, the words that you use, it's hard for me to accept that. But God is transforming my heart and my mind to know that love is the answer. Love is the method. Love is what people will hear. And as they hear that message of love, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, His love and His grace and His mercy. Whatever our messy relationships might be, the sincere, genuine love of God must be what we wear in those relationships. As much as it depends on us, we pursue harmony with one another, whether it be our closest of friends or deepest of enemies. The love of God is what we carry into the world so that people and relationships might be reconciled through the gospel of Jesus. I want to leave you with this passage in Romans chapter 5. It's the heart, I feel like, to me as I read it, the heart of what I want to be about. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, for 40 years I've known that reality, to be justified by, God, by, by my faith of what God has done for me. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Church family, 
we boast in the glory of who God is. It's his love that transforms my life. It's his love that transforms your life. It's his love that transforms our relationships when, when we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, no longer wanting to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Let's pray. Father God, your love and your grace is overwhelming. We've experienced in our own lives. We've seen it at work in our lives. We read your word and we're reminded of your love. In the good and the bad of our lives, in the good and the bad of relationships, it's your love that is steadfast and true. The same love that you showed in generations past is the same love that you show today and will continue to show in generations to come. And Father, this morning, maybe there are those that have stepped into this place and and they've had questions. They've wondered if they ever could be loved. A genuine, sincere love. And this morning, you're speaking into their hearts and saying, here is my true, genuine, and sincere love offered to you. Whatever your past Whatever your present, whatever your future, my love is extended to you. For those of us that have walked with you for for decades or moments or years, we ask, we ask that your love would transform our hearts, that we would be able to love the way that you've loved us, to love the unlovable, to love that person who is our enemy, to love the person that we love to love. Because as you transform our hearts, you transform the community around us. Father, that's our method. That's our purpose. Let us hold fast into your good and perfect will as we continue to worship this morning. May you be honored and glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen.